Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. (laughs) Who needs sleep anyway? Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories, Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 6, Episode 18. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In this episode, I'll be performing four spine-chilling tales for you about oppressive evils, conniving cults, gruesome games, and alarming attractions. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program, which contains the first two terrifying tales. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. Now it's time to take a walk together down the moonlit trail. So lock your doors, turn your lights down low. And settle in. The show is about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale tonight comes to us courtesy of author Matt Demersky, an award-winning Ohio-based author of horror and science fiction who has been entertaining readers for over a decade. Matt was the winner of Reddit No Sleep's Best Multi-Part Story of 2012, for his Asylum series, as well as the forum's best story of 2017, and Story of the Month in January 2018. In our last episode, we presented four of Matt's fantastic tales, and tonight you're getting an encore in the form of one of his spooky latest entrees. Without further ado, I present to you The Things We Thought We Banished. When the quarantine began, I thought life couldn't get any worse. But it only took a week of silent streets and empty lots for that to change. On the seventh night, 
sitting and staring across the block from my window of my apartment, I saw something move. Initially, my interest was idle. I had less than nothing to do for a full week. I'd scoured the internet, watched every movie, and played every game. Only a couple of blocks from the edge of endless farmland, there was nothing to do. When the fun ran out, I simply sat at the window and took in the motionless neighborhood. A nebulous sense of longing kept me posted as a lookout for anything that might signal a change. So, when I saw movement, I waited. It took twelve minutes for the motion to happen again. It was quick, a mere instant, and would have been missed if I hadn't anything better to do. Citing that motion a second time, it occurred to me that there was probably something out there. Idle curiosity became active interest, and I peered at that night-shadowed intersection of fences and sidewalk from my third-floor vantage point for another twenty minutes. Curiously, there was no subtlety to it. There was no attempt to remain hidden. I couldn't fathom what it was at first, so I tried to make sense of it. Was someone climbing a tree and casting a shadow somehow? There was definitely an aspect of two grasping arms and a silhouette of a head, but the shape itself didn't make sense. I saw no other source, nothing between the pale azure streetlights and the ground to make such an impression, but that couldn't be right. The shadowy object on the ground, taken purely on its own merits, would have to have been an oversized torso pulling itself along the sidewalk with two long spindly arms. There was no fear. Not yet. I had a world view, and I was secure in it. I told myself I wasn't seeing it right, or that somebody was playing a prank. Still, there was fascination. I sat captivated as the silhouette of a torso dragged itself down the opposite sidewalk under a darkly cloudy night sky intermittently illuminated by lonely blue streetlights and flare-dotted urban sprawl. In fact, I smiled. This clearly impossible entity was going about its business in a world that it had no place for it. Whatever that thing was, it couldn't happen here. I stared right at it, and I refused to believe it. Two floors below my vantage point, the door of my apartment building opened, and a Mexican woman I recognized as a fellow tenant emerged. Two heavy bags of trash in hand, she waddled for the dumpster around the corner. I briefly felt indignant that she was going outside so brazenly, but of course we were allowed to go outside in brief and limited ways. It was just a trash run. She was still a prisoner, just like me. As she exited the front gate and turned in the direction of the neighborhood dumpster, my eyes snapped back to the thing that couldn't possibly be real. It was only a few feet away, directly across the street from her, but hidden by breeze-shifting shadows. I watched in disbelief as its head turned toward her. It reached out an uncannily long arm and started dragging itself across asphalt. I could just about see my fellow tenant if I leaned out the window. She pushed one bag over the edge of the dumpster and let it fall. After stretching her wrists, she began hefting the second bag. She was taking too long, and she was facing the wrong way. I raised my hand half-heartedly. I made a weak sound, too, a sort of, uh, uh. It wasn't real. I didn't want to come off hysterical. What would even happen if I said something? Would she turn, see nothing, and think I was a loon? She tipped a second bag over the edge of the dumpster, then sighed, stretched her wrists, and turned around to head back in. Instead, she stopped. Just like me, she stared, not comprehending. They weren't arms. Whatever it had been dragging itself with, those appendages weren't arms. 
one curled around her shin in weird, angular ways. Her scream echoed with the shattered remnants of my world view, collapsing like so much broken glass. My beliefs rained down around my thoughts, paralyzing me as I watched her stumble backwards. Barely avoiding its grasp, she ran for the gate and punched in the code. The small red light indicated she'd entered the wrong numbers by accident, something I myself did often. I whispered encouragement as she punched in the numbers again. Red again. My encouragement became soft cussing as the other limb ratcheted toward her feet. She pressed the numbers one more time. Green. She pushed through the gate, slammed it behind her, and ran screaming for the front door of the building. Heads began emerging from windows below as my fellow tenants peered out in response to the noise. They couldn't see it. The gate and the fence were too tall for people on the first and second floors. I was the only one who truly understood. There were other tenants on the third floor, but they were around a corner, and their windows were pointed at other apartments. They didn't know. One shouted up to me in Askins, but I just shook my head. How could I possibly convey what I'd seen? They still had the old world view, and they would reject anything I had to say until they saw the truth themselves. I turned off my light, wrapped myself in blankets, slid the curtain shut, and peered out through a small gap. The torso thing dragged itself past the dumpster and out of sight, but it was hardly the last shadow to move in the night. None were close enough to make sense of, and they all could easily have been figments of my electrified imagination. But there was no longer any denying that there was something out there. Humanity had retreated from the streets and valleys of the land. The news had spoken of wildlife returning to fill the void, of dolphins visiting beaches and wolves walking through parking lots, and apparently there was more out there in the fringes of the world than dreamt of in my naive picture of how things ought to be. No, not mine. The picture of how things ought to be had been carefully painted for me by others. Did I truly know anything at all? I cowered in my bedroom watching the darkly glimmering night, and I did nothing. After all, I wasn't really in danger. Not yet. I was on the third floor, and I would no doubt be woken by screaming long before any risk reached me. We had fences, we had a gate, and we had sturdy walls. We could just wait it out, I told myself. My blankets seemed useless. Sentimentality was a joke. I was wearing sweatpants I'd had for ten years. Always comfortable, always my favorite. There was no security in that feeling now. My life was made of balsa wood and masking tape, and none of the sturdiness I'd so arrogantly come to assume. Shaken to my core, I abandoned my blanket cocoon and began pacing my apartment. I needed something to stop this feeling of nerve-burning terror. I couldn't rest, couldn't stop moving, couldn't find balance. I was compelled, even tortured. Our building had a central lounge on the second floor, and we'd stored an emergency stack of food boxes there as sort of a communal show of solidarity. I intended to take some of them before anyone knew something was wrong outside. That way, I would have a backup plan. If the situation really fell apart, I could barricade my door and window and hole up until it all blew over. With a backup plan like that, I could finally end this tortuous, nerve-wracking fear. I knew it was wrong. I felt ashamed throughout the entire walk, along the hallway and down the stairs. I hoped nobody would see me because I couldn't bear to go through with... Well, go through with it if they did. Relief and disappointment met me at the entrance to the lounge. There were a dozen people arguing, all standing with their roommates and family members at various separate entrances. 
Nobody dared get close to one another because of the quarantine, so they instead talked loudly at a distance. At one entrance to my left, the Mexican woman was sobbing and explaining in rapid Spanish. Across the lounge at one of the narrower doors, a man I'd seen taking mail from the apartment to a box was listening intently while carrying his young son. 2A reported, some kind of wild animal. First it was a monster, now it's a wild animal. A mother of her three children at the far exit complained. So all this yelling was just about some animal? The Mexican woman saw me, opened her eyes wide, pointed and let loose a string of excited words. 2A looked my way. She says 3A saw her get attacked. Oh, God. She noticed me, watching. What else could I say? All eyes were on me as I stammered. There was nothing. It was just a stray cat. A chorus of sighs erupted, and a college student in a far corner threw up his hands. Screw this. I'm going back to bed. The others shook their heads and began to turn back down their respective hallways. The Mexican woman stared at me with confusion and anger, exclaiming, Un gato! Un gato! before leaving in disgust. When they were gone, I slunk further in, heart pounding for many reasons. I opened the cabinets of the lounge kitchen, scooped up a box of food in my arms, and darted back upstairs with them. What exactly does it mean to be a bad person? I considered that question as I slid my couch against my front door and tilted my mattress across my window, save for a small gap through which I could watch the world. Secure in my makeshift bunker, stocked with food, and surrounded by people who would be affected first and scream if anything happened, I was finally able to sleep. When I awoke in the morning, it was to more shouting, this time outside. Pulling my curtain open, I felt the previous night's terror returning as I watched 2A run back and forth in the narrow, leafy paths surrounding the neighboring one-story homes that were not part of our building. To my left, a grocery store delivery truck careened away. Where the truck and the man had met, a pile of bags remained, while 2A himself held two close to his chest as he played a horrible game of tag with the hell was that? This was no half-seen shadowed thing, lurching about in the night. This loped. It was bleeding, but it was not wounded. The crimson drops smoked under the sun as they burned the grass. 2A threw one of his bags at it, then dashed the other way. And I, I was a bad person. I dreamt about the shame compelled by that pain, now a greater torture than my nerves. I finally shouted, Left! 2A looked up past the ivory-covered fences and saw me. Left! I shouted again, pointing. It's going around! It's trying to cut you off! He clutched his remaining bag and ran left. The bleeding and loping thing bashed its tusks against the fence where he would have been, finding nothing but wood. Someone was holding the front door open below, recalling the code problems from the night before. I screamed at her, Go open the gate! She looked up at me, surprised. The gate! Get the gate for him! Finally, comprehending, she dashed out, held the button on our side, and opened the gate just in time for him to charge through. She was visibly considering going after some of the grocery bags, left on the sidewalk, but she looked at me first. I shook my head. The loping thing was coming down the leafy alley. Wisely, she chose to shut the gate, pausing just long enough to snap a picture through the bars. She ran back into the building. The loud talking in the lounge had graduated yelling. When I arrived, 2A was quite animated. Somebody took the food here. I wouldn't have had to order groceries early, if the reserve had still been here. That college student replied without actually replying. 
I've already tried talking about it online. Nobody will believe us. I've already posted the shot 1C, God of that bleeding creature, but people are just saying it's a shitty Photoshop. 2A insisted. Somebody took the food. Somebody here knew it was coming and did nothing. From one of the entrances, the Mexican woman looked my way with narrowed eyes. He refused to believe her. Nah, 3A helped me. We've got to figure out who really did it. Tense but relieved, I thought to suggest calling the police, but then dismissed the notion, remembering that would just add a new problem for us rather than solving the current one. The single mom with the three kids who I'd overheard was 2D, interrupted. Enough with the accusations. We're safe here, right? It's just weird, solitary creatures roaming around. We just have to make it a couple of weeks. So when we order groceries, we just look out for each other and we'll be fine. I was the only one who could truly see the neighborhood. I supported her take on things so that the communal ire wouldn't focus on me. But that meant I was on lookout duty more or less permanently. There's no one to look out for me, though, since we can't go in each other's apartments without risking spreading the virus. The thought came to me like a stroke of genius. I floated out of my body as I dared to say, So, I can't run out there for deliveries. Can people give me a piece of food when I look out for them? The tension in the room faded as my fellow tenants agreed to that reasonable proposal. The only one who remained unhappy was the Mexican woman, who continued to glare at me. To our credit, the system worked fine as long as everything went according to plan. For five weeks, I never had to take a single risk, and the neighbors had no idea how much food began to pile up in my living room and bedroom as each person gave me one box or head of lettuce or bag of apples or whatever else they could spare from each run. Every family had to order groceries, and none were really aware of the schedules of the others, so none realized I was shouting directions ten or fifteen times a day. It wasn't just groceries, either. There were deliveries of medical supplies, video games, movies, toys for kids, sometimes clothes. We were basically being entirely supplied by overworked delivery drivers, and none of those drivers dared get out of their vehicles. Like us, they knew awful creatures were roaming the empty streets, and like us, there was nothing they could do about it but endure. My hoarded piles of stuff began to accumulate to the point that I wondered how I could continue hiding it from the others. My living space was filling up. If one of them caught so much as a glimpse inside my apartment, I knew something terrible would happen. I still had nightmares of guilt about what I was doing, but what choice did I have? I didn't want to go out there. I didn't want to risk death. There was nobody to look out for me. At a full six weeks into the quarantine, I was sitting alone in my cramped apartment, still wrapped up in blankets, still peering out through a small gap, when the wrench in the works appeared. I'd seen all manner of horrors wandering the streets, from bleeding, loping things, to ratchet-crawler torsos, to snake-like wolves, but this was far worse. The destroyer came in the form of a knock on my door. Immediately mortified, I carefully went at my way toward the front of my apartment, taking care not to stumble on any boxes. I called through the closed wooden door. Hello? Hi, it's 2D, the single mom with the three kids. I swallowed down apprehension. Yeah? We're kind of... Out of money? We can't order things anymore. I'm going around asking if anybody has anything to spare. My tongue felt thick in my mouth as I lied. Sorry, all out. I can't order things myself, either. Right, she replied through the door, sounding disappointed. I'm sorry to bother you. She left, but I didn't move for a full hour. I just stood staring at the stacked boxes of stuff I'd acquired. 
My hoarded wealth was the only thing keeping me from panicking and the only thing that allowed me to sleep at night. But I was also racked by fitful dreams. Later that night, when everyone was asleep, I crept downstairs and I left a large box chock full of food in front of 2D's door. With a big smile on my face, I returned to my apartment and laid down for the first night of good sleep I'd had in two months. Problem solved. Except four days later, the family in 1E ran out of money and began going around asking for donations. And then a week after that, the old man in 3B, my direct neighbor around the corner of the building, ran out of money and began going around asking for donations. The community meeting in the lounge was quiet this time, rather than loud. We stood in separate corners and exits, still far from one another. The dad from 1E said sadly, We're going to die in here if we don't do something. Where's the government? 3B asked. Where's the police? I got a thousand other buildings to worry about, old man, retorted the college student whose apartment number I still didn't know. They're not coming. They said the quarantine was only supposed to be two weeks. But we're still on lockdown going on month three. 3B quavered as he spoke. But they'll get us money, right? Food? 2D couldn't look any of us in the eye. I saw my husband. She sobbed twice, then added, He's been dead for over a year. He asked me to let him in. When I told him I couldn't do that because he was an abusive asshole, he turned around. It was a rotting thing made of beetles that had dug him up and was wearing his face. She began to openly cry. It laughed at me. It didn't even really want in. It just wanted to torment me. Aghast, the college student breathed. What the shit? What's happening to the world? We all knew it was getting worse out there. As the number of delivery drivers coming our way had declined, the empty spaces between pockets of mankind had only deepened. From the chatter on the Internet... The cities were fine, and so were most towns, but we were on the fringes quite near open farmland, and civilization proper had no idea what was creeping its way back in. I don't know who said it, but we were all thinking it. We're going to have to go out there, kill those things, maybe even eat them, just like hunting. Only the animals can fight back. A wave of nausea hit me, as I thought about eating the exposed, bleeding flesh of that loping thing, or the scaly meat of that snake-like wolf. But then I realized I wouldn't have to eat it. I'd moan stockpile. 2A pointed my way. Lookout duties upgraded to coordinating a hunt. You're in charge. You game? To that I nodded slowly. They crafted what makeshift weapons they could. Mainly branches whittled to points, stolen from trees right outside the building, and we waited. I sat out my window and watched the neighborhood. In the daylight, more animalistic creatures often wandered, but we had to wait for ones that we might possibly take down. That day, only the more dangerous ones happened by. A real brown bear that looked afflicted by some sort of horrific parasite wrapped around the top of its head, and a leathery bird with one snapped wing that kept scraping the ground with two-foot-long teeth at the end of its beak. I decided neither were good targets. At night, the shadowed and dead things walked. I saw two D's or beetle rotter, but it was wandering in another direction. Two hours later, the dragging ratchet crawler began clanging its limbs against our dumpsters as if reliving that first attack, but then it moved on without incident. It was followed soon after by a blob of what looked like corpses melded together into a mass I could smell even at my height. I closed the window before gagging too much. In the morning, though, I saw the bleeding loper clacking its way down our sidewalk, 
It was sort of like a bore, so I slid my stick down and tapped Two-Way's window directly below mine. That was the signal. In less than two minutes, a dozen of my neighbors emerged from the front of the building and lined up behind the gate. I eyed the beast until it began snuffling at something in the leafy alleys, and then I made a fist. Two-Way opened the gate and led the charge. There was no sense in being quiet anymore, so I began shouting orders. Cut off the alleys! It's seen you! It's preparing to charge! My neighbors were no more skilled at this than I, so it took nearly twenty minutes, but I finally managed to direct them into cornering it. They stabbed it repeatedly, spraying smoking blood this way and that, felling it only after destroying an unidentifiable organ in its lower abdomen. It was our first moment of hope in nearly three months. They dragged it inside, up the stairs, and into the second-floor lounge. On the tiled section of the kitchen area, the two men that knew about meat went about the disgusting work of carving and cooking it. I had to admit, it certainly smelled like meat, though I did not want to eat it. Nevertheless, 2A handed me the biggest cooked chunk. For me... Why? His answer was simple. Because you're in charge, and you did good for us. My neighbors gathered around the meat, abandoning the policy of separation that had kept us apart for so long. None of us had left the building in three months, and it was entirely possible the virus had never even been among us. Now they began hugging and clapping shoulders and tearing into chunks of unfamiliar meat with their teeth. I watched this, holding the largest piece. I was in charge. Why was I in charge? Happenstance. 3A had been the least valued apartment when I moved in because it was two flights up of stairs and facing the street. By virtue of where I'd been when all this began, I somehow ended up in charge and with a huge hoard. It had just been random luck, and sure, a little self-serving shittiness, but I was over that shame now. Because I was in charge, I provided a valuable service, and that meant I was justified in being where I was and having what I had. These people couldn't get by without me. There was still one threat to my safety remaining, however. She glared at me as I sat holding the largest chunk. Pulling to a aside, I whispered, Hey, you got my back, right? Of course, boss. She replied quietly, What is it? I thought I heard that lady. Hmm, that would sound plausible. I saw her conspiring with the beetle thing last night, talking to it from her window. I think we need to kick her out of the building or she's going to let it in. He glanced over surreptitiously. The Mexican lass? He paused. What apartment's she in? I didn't know either. Not sure. But you saw her from her window. He whispered, eyes on me. Shit. Uh, I had no time to think of another plausible lie. Yeah, I did. The jig was up. He knew I was bullshitting. He'd clearly connected the dots on my flat-out lie. I prepared for the worst, to be kicked out, to have my hoard stolen, to possibly being jabbed myself by one of our spears. Instead, he thought for a long moment, and then said, We'll take care of it, boss. He moved away then to discuss, in hushed tones, with some of the other men. Strange? Maybe. I didn't eat that unfamiliar meat. I dropped it, then headed upstairs to eat something more familiar, in the safety of my apartment. The view from my window was the same, but somehow felt a little higher and a little darker. There would be no more guilty nightmares. I was safe. I was secure, in charge, and had everything I needed. And that was all that mattered.
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I hope you enjoyed The Things We Thought We Banished, as written by author Matt Demersky and performed by yours truly. If you enjoyed what you've heard, I'd like to encourage you to visit the author's official website at mattdemersky.com, where you'll find links to his books for sale, his social media, and ways to contact him for more information. Or check him out at Amazon.com, where you'll find a selection of his collections of short stories, as well as his longer works. Pick up a copy or two, and you won't be disappointed. I know I wasn't. Matt's website, once again, is Matt, spelled M-A-T-T, Demersky, spelled D-Y-M-E-R-S-K-I dot com. Thanks again for your support of this very talented author and of indie horror. And don't forget to let Matt know that Otis sent you. It means a lot to me. Up next, we've got another second tale of terror for you, courtesy of author Christopher Maxim. Without further ado, I present to you The Blood Keeper. I live in a small but lively town in Massachusetts. Its local legends have fueled my love affair with the paranormal. It's a subject that fascinates me to this day. Coupled with insomnia, this passion led me to spend many a late night at the town cemetery on the off chance I might see a ghostly apparition while walking through to pass the time. Unfortunately, most of these outings were unfruitful, void of any and all activity, supernatural or otherwise. I gave up on my dream of stealing a glimpse at what comes after, but kept visiting the graves anyway, a place where I could collect my thoughts when sleep eluded me. One night, however, something changed. It was a dark spring evening. I was bored, couldn't sleep, and felt the need to do something outdoors in the cool night air. As it so often did, the local graveyard called out to me, begging me to frolic within its gates. I obliged, unable to fight the alluring promise of its peaceful nature. It was the only place I could truly relax. After a couple hours there, I decided on one last stroll along the headstones in an attempt to become tired before heading home. On starting my walk, I noticed something. There was a light on in the groundskeeper's shack. It wasn't like him to be working so late. This wasn't completely out of the ordinary, however, until you factored in the large gaping hole nearby, big enough for several caskets. It was a miracle I hadn't fallen in earlier in the night. Curious as to what the old man was up to, I crept over to the shack, making my way to the busted window on its side. What I saw was strange. Inside were nine men wearing tattered blue shrouds, partaking in a makeshift feast. The main course was an oily red stew with a horrific smell that permeated the shack's walls and ventured up my nasal passages, tempting me to gag. The men winced when putting it to their lips, save for three, a tall man at the end of the table, 
and the two sat beside him. When the feast was over, this tall figure stood up and addressed the room. Hello, newcomers. I hope dinner has been to your liking. He spoke with a firm voice. It resonated throughout the shack and beckoned even me to listen. Now that our bellies are full, Elijah will explain the rules of your impending trial. I listened closely. It seemed the men in the shack were part of a collective known as the Bloodlights. The trial the tall man spoke of was something akin to a medieval gladiator sport used to initiate new members. I listened on as Elijah divulged the game's inner workings, fearful but curious. Two teams were to disperse to opposite sides of the cemetery, each consisting of four members, three blood runners and one blood baron. The initiates would be the runners, and the tall man's henchmen would act as barons. There was one more participant to be discussed, the tall man himself. He was the blood keeper, though not on either team. He was the most crucial facet of the game. He kept and guarded what was referred to as the blood. I gathered that this referred to the red amulet hanging from the keeper's neck, as he firmly clasped it every time the word blood was uttered. The job of the runners was to retrieve the blood from the keeper. The barons acted as counsel, overseeing each team and helping where needed. After Elijah finished his lecture, the bloodkeeper took over. With every wound there is blood. With every drop of blood there is solace. Without death there can be no light. The keeper opened a large cupboard in the corner of the shack, revealing a woman bound and gagged, futilely attempting to cry out for help. My heart sank. This was not your normal run-of-the-mill cult ritual. I had to find help, but what if they hurt me? Unable to nail down my next course of action, I was immobile, frozen in fear. The bloodkeeper continued. The light of blood can only be seen in death. Pulling a large red dagger out of his cloak, he grabbed the woman and plunged it into her gut. I watched in horror as the life left her eyes. She began to shriek, but was soon cut off by a cut to the chest, followed by a final blow to her neck. I was mortified. After throwing his kill to the floor, the keeper pulled out three vials, filling each of them with the blood that dripped from his blade. This was the blood the runners were after, not the amulet. This is all the blood I have to offer. That gives, at most, three of you the opportunity to become bloodlights. And remember, you are being watched. Those who feel to collect must be disposed of. The same goes for any outsider you encounter. Corpses are to be thrown in the pit. Oh, dear God, I was truly in danger. That's what the nearby hole was for, the perfect hiding spot for a mass grave. You must stop at nothing to obtain one of these vials. All others will be sacrificed. Your thirst for blood must be as strong as your will to live. The man exited the shack to begin the trial. I scurried silently to the wooded part of the graveyard and hid behind a large tree, not wanting to end up like that poor woman. I just needed an opening to escape without being noticed. Glancing out at the cemetery, I saw a runner knelt before a grave, eyes closed. I assumed this was a requirement before the game commenced, a perfect chance for me to make a run for it. Let the trial begin! The bloodkeeper's voice echoed through the trees before I could even take a single step towards safety. My survival still hung in the balance. Using a moonlit pool of water by my feet as a reflective surface, I watched as Elijah and three runners strategized just ten yards from my position. My heart was pounding so hard, I was worried they would hear it. 
Between the beating in my chest and the conspiring whispers that filled the forest, my ears were consumed with an unsettling symphony of torture. Just when I couldn't bear another moment, silence cut through the brisk night air like the keeper's dagger, piercing that woman's skin. A chill then burrowed into my spine. The puddle's reflection bore no cloaked figures. Peering out from behind the tree confirmed that they were gone, or at least nowhere to be seen. This was my chance. Looking off into the distance, I saw a tomb by the main road, maybe a hundred yards away. It would provide the perfect cover to escape towards civilization. But there was no way I could waltz over there without being seen. The woods wrapped around the cemetery, so running from tree to tree would strengthen my odds of survival. I took a deep breath and braced myself. Without so much as a second thought, I dashed to the next tree on the path to safety and took cover. I then gathered my wits and surveyed my surroundings. No cloaks in sight. I sprinted to the next tree and took another look out at the world. The coast was still clear. As I was about to take off in the direction of my next hiding spot, panic set in as my feet inexplicably left solid ground. My blood ran cold as I was lifted into the air by some unseen force. The next thing I knew, my body was hoisted up and placed atop a tree branch. There I was greeted by the unnerving sight of my captor, a blood runner. I didn't scream or try to get away. It would have been of no use. I sat there in terror and exhaled what I thought would be my last breath. Instead of gutting me, the man spoke. What's your name? I was too shocked to respond. Come on now, who are you? He spoke clearer this time, revealing a slight English accent. Look, I noticed you at the window over there, eavesdropping. If I wanted you dead, I could have killed you then. I want you to help me. Help you? I asked. Yes. I'm going to use you to my advantage. I take it you know what we're doing here, and you know the rules of the game. I nodded slowly, still shook. Good. With you, I may be able to turn the tables and get the upper hand. I was frightened, but I calmed down enough to focus on the runner's plan. See that tomb over there? That's where the bloodkeeper is. My stomach turned to think... This guy may have just saved my life. I need you to go over to the tomb and open the door slowly. The bloodkeeper will surely take a swing at you. Just as he's about to end your life, I'll swoop in and end his. But why, I asked. That's not part of the game. Right, you are. You need not concern yourself with the why. Just know that if you don't do as I say... I will kill you myself. Now, get going. The man gave me his cloak for protection and pushed me out of the tree. I didn't want to risk facing the bloodkeeper, but I didn't want to perish at the runner's hands either. My fear of dying kept me from deviating. I again ran from tree to tree, eventually making it to my destination. The stench of bloodshed wafting through the air as runners fought for control of the field. With my back pressed to the cold, aged stone, the pull to escape grew. The main road was within reach, but the thought quickly subsided. I was far too worried the Englishman would catch up with me and take his prize. He was able to climb a tree and lift my weight into it without a sound. It was clear he possessed the agility and stealth needed to take me by surprise during a haphazard run for the hills. I sighed in defeat, knowing that one way or another I would probably die that night. Mustering up every bit of courage I had left, I crept around the tomb and faced its door. My shaking hands reached for the rusted handle and pulled it towards me. Before its hinges could even creak at the motion, the door burst open, pushed from within. The forest knocked me over, my head connecting with the unforgiving ground. The moments that came after remained fuzzy. 
The bloodkeeper towered over me, half of his body in shadow, the other soaked in moonlight. A vision of death there to steal the blood from my racing heart. My eyes grew weary and shut for an instant before opening to see another figure. I couldn't make out who it was in my dazed state, but one attacked the other, completely overpowering them. The prey in this scuffle fell to his knees before landing face first into the cold cemetery soil. A familiar sound of metal colliding with flesh rang through the air as the victor saw to it that the job was done. I prayed it was the bloodkeeper being torn apart. Otherwise, I was a goner. My eyes shut again before unconsciousness finally took hold. Hey, are you all right? I heard an old man's voice as I came to. Are you okay? I opened my eyes to see who it was. The groundskeeper stood over me, holding a lantern to my face. What? How? Where are they? Where's who? he asked. You don't understand. I should be dead. The groundskeeper stared at me, confused, but then smiled. Come on, you'll catch cold out here. The groundskeeper, who I now know to be Pete, invited me into his shack. He prepared some food and tossed me a blanket to keep warm. Thankful and in need of an ear to fill, I told him everything, despite how I knew it would sound. I didn't describe the men by their given titles, but Pete seemed to know who I was talking about. Sounds like you had a run-in with the bloodkeeper. That's him. How do you know? His spirit's been visiting these grounds for over a hundred years now, I suppose. His spirit? Incredible. It was all a haunting. Something I always thought I wanted to experience firsthand. Pete and I talked for a long while. He knew all about the bloodlights and their dastardly deeds. Apparently, they were a sadistic cult that formed in the 1800s, terrorizing the local community. Each bloodlight initiation brought with it more disappearances. They used the cemetery as a space for their trials, burying casualties and sacrifices at the end of every night. After all, who would look for the bodies in a graveyard? Over fifty souls fell victim to the bloodlights before their sinister games were brought to a halt. During their last outing, an Englishman infiltrated their ranks and killed the bloodkeeper avenging the death of his wife, who had been murdered during one of their trials. Soon after, his disciples came forward, claiming to have been controlled by the keeper's amulet, alleging that it had supernatural powers. No such amulet was ever recovered. After Pete explained everything, I sat in awe, dumbstruck by the whole ordeal. Had I relived that fateful night, or did I time travel and help that man fulfill his goal. I may never know what happened that day, but one thing is certain. I will never visit another cemetery for as long as I live, just in case the ghost of the bloodkeeper is still out there, making his rounds. I hope you enjoyed The Bloodkeeper by author Christopher Maxim, as performed by yours truly. I'd like to take a moment to ask for your help. If you're able to offer it, on behalf of the author of our last tale. Regrettably, Chris Maxim has been hard hit, both financially and physically, by the coronavirus pandemic. He suffers from a high-risk health condition that's left him immunocompromised and quarantined indefinitely. Coupled with serious issues, collecting unemployment, Chris has found it difficult to make ends meet, let alone afford the treatment he needs to improve his health. So I'd like to ask you a simple favor. If you're able to help in any way, whether by donating to him directly or by purchasing his books on Amazon.com, it would mean a lot to both of us. We've set up an author profile for Chris on our website at simplyscarypodcast.com slash maxim 
spelled M-A-X-I-M. On that page, you'll find links to Chris's Amazon page, as well as an assortment of his featured books. You'll also find a donation link that will allow you to show your appreciation for his bone-chilling fiction by contributing a few dollars to him directly. Just look for the donation link on his social media links at the top of the page. You can also use the page to contact Chris if you'd like to ask about other ways to help. Thanks again for your support of the writers that helped make this show possible. As for me, I'd like to personally thank you for joining me for this episode of Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you enjoyed what you've heard on today's program, please take a moment to stop by our iTunes page or wherever else you listen to your favorite podcasts and leave us a five-star review and a kind word. It makes a huge difference and would mean a lot to us. If you'd like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's and all of our other episodes featuring Twice the Terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com where you can purchase season passes for this podcast and our other quality storytelling programs. Or become a patron for as little as $5 per month and get access to our entire audio archive dating back to 2012, all of it ad-free. If you happen to use Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube, you can follow and subscribe to Chilling Tales for Dark Nights there, where you'll get all of our latest updates and new releases and have the chance to interact with us each and every week. You can subscribe to me on YouTube as well at the Otis Jiry channel, where you'll find releases of my series, Horror Storytime, dating back to 2014. And you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, too. Just search for Otis Jiry. Until next week, stay spooky and get some sleep, if you can. <laughs> Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark, a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcasts Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com today to learn more about our network and our other amazing storytelling programs. Tonight's program was hosted and its featured stories performed by yours truly, Otis Jiry. Selected stories have been adapted with the kind permission of their respective authors. Original music provided by Luke Hodgkinson and Jesse Cornett. Sound design and final mixing and mastering provided by executive producer and director Craig Groshek. Program's artwork and logo by David Romero. If you're looking for some fresh tales on a daily basis while waiting for the next podcast, check out my YouTube channel, The Otis Jiry Channel, and my extensive collection of narrated tales there. Simply search on YouTube by my name, and you'll find me. And don't forget to subscribe and press the bell notification icon to get my latest releases. Got a scary tale of your own that you'd like performed? I take submissions. Email it to me today at otis at simplyscarypodcast.com to have your terrifying tome considered for production in a future episode of this show. That's O-T-I-S at simplyscarypodcast.com. If you've enjoyed what you heard on tonight's program and are joining us on your favorite podcast app, subscribe to us to be sure you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review and a comment. Your feedback means a lot to me. You can also follow Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and yours truly on Facebook to connect anytime and get the latest updates on this and other programs and my channel. If you're listening on the Chilling Tales for Dark Nights YouTube channel, do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com 
and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.